So before we jump into some conversation, um, I'd just like to take a moment just to focus on a conscious intention for this. So if you'd close your eyes and join me. We'll just start by connecting with the body again, which may mean for you just a basic physical feeling of connecting with your feet on the ground, the feeling of your hands in your lap or on your legs. And I want to ask you to connect directly with whatever is arising for you right now. Meaning, can you just meet that with awareness in the body as a felt presence? If it's something uncomfortable, can we reserve our judgment for the moment and maybe open up to the possibility of just dipping our toe in the water, of feeling something we may not want to feel, be that frustration, anxiety, sadness, whatever that uncomfortable feeling is. And of course, if we feel something neutral, pleasant, that's fine too. Just be with that. So here, as we connect with our embodied experience, we can just begin to reflect on what do we seek in life? Reflecting on why we do what we do, be it choices of relationships, choices of careers, life decisions, all the way down to very small choices throughout our day. So I don't know about you, but for me personally, I haven't found any action that I engage in where I'm not looking for some kind of happiness. Something to either relieve pain or to provide something pleasant. So if we reflect deeply, it's not only ourselves who wish for happiness and wish to not have pain or dissatisfaction or suffering. All others around us are in the same boat. And so our own pain our own struggles and challenges throughout our life may be unique to us in certain ways, but they're not unique generally. In that all others, no matter if we like them, we dislike them, or we just don't have really an attitude of like or dislike, just a neutral attitude. They all wish to be free from that which binds them, or that what's appearing to bind them. They all wish to have happiness. So as we explore the Buddha Dharma today, here we're going to generate a conscious intention. That just as I myself wish for happiness and wish to relieve my suffering through the path of meditation and the Buddha Dharma, 
may this grow my inner light in order to become a light for the world, in order to help others in relieving their own suffering. So here we connect in our own learning reflection and meditation with that of others, their life goals, seeing them in a deeper way beyond our limiting beliefs about them. Thanks. <laughs> I don't know why I love coming to Long Beach. Maybe it's the ocean or just it's more relaxed down here. I don't know. I live in New York now, so um, it's like the opposite of Los Angeles. <laughs> I live in Brooklyn. It's a fun place. <laughs> so um, I think what I want to talk about today, <laughs> I woke up. I have those days as a, as a teacher where um, I wake up and the topic I plan for, I'm like, mm, I'm not sure about that. And then kind of end up ruminating on three or four topics and then just end up completely confused and have no idea what I'm going to say. <laughs> you ever have that problem? <laughs> um, I think just to start, I wanted to reflect on a, th a few things, just a few kind of uh, groundwork I like to lay in, in talks these days. And I think some of this groundwork is really helpful for us um, in understanding where are we, what we can get out of meditation, what we can get out of the Buddhist path if we, if we want to go into that. Um, and so here, the premise is from a Buddhist perspective, and I like to wake up and remind myself of this every day. And I've noticed as my meditation practice has grown and uh, a little bit of understanding has come, that it's easier to connect with this as well. It starts to actually come out, not just as, as a thought, but as an actual experience. And the idea here is that we are not fundamentally flawed from a Buddhist perspective. We are not fundamentally screwed up in trying to become better. Actually, at the root of our beingness, um, we would say we have these qualities of awakening. We have these qualities that are fully free, not bound, Right? And I'm going to get into what, that, what freedom means from a Buddhist perspective, and I'm sure a lot of you already know. And usually we call this, and in, in classically in, in Buddhist literature and texts, we call this, uh, this nature Tathagatagarbha, basically uh, our Buddha nature, right? And um, sometimes we, you've probably heard the term basic goodness, the sense of, of a fundamental you know, goodness. But again, the term is a little tricky because when you say good, then you can also have, can't can you have basic badness, <laughs> right? Because you have the duality of goodness, good and bad. So I like to keep it a little bit classical and uh, keep it OG of <laughs> Buddha nature. And so here, again, the premise is that all sentient beings, no matter who they are, what they are, how maniacal they may appear on the outside, the seed is latent within them, right? And similarly, the seed is latent within us. And when we start to water that seed, when we start to provide the conditions for that seed to grow, it will grow, right? As we come more in connection with that. So a good analogy for this 
is the difference between a window and the dirt and mud that can get caked on that window or all the stuff that kind of can appear as not the window, right? And when we go to clean the window, we, we, we say the word, I'm going to clean the window, but actually the window is, is clean. There's nothing wrong with the window, right? The window's always been clean. It's never been dirty, but we're simply washing the dirt or mud away, right? So here, the premise is no matter how much mud appears to us, uh, uh, blocking or as an obstruction between ourselves and this pure nature, that in itself is an illusion in the sense that it's not the window itself, right? So for me, I wake up and try to remember this every day, not because I'm trying to magically think my way out of responsibility or, you know, changing bad behavior or uh, meaning like behavior that's uh, destructive for myself and others, trying to change that. No, we have that responsibility as well. But it's remembering every day the goodness, right? Because it's so easy to remember the negative qualities about ourselves and others. It's much easier, right? Um, I was listening to a, a short video talk the other day where the teacher was recommending, you know, every day finding three good things, you know, and really reflecting on that. And it sounds kind of simple and maybe like, not necessarily like a traditional Buddhist thing, but it's actually quite powerful because if we tend to see the negative, if we, if we tend to see sort of uh, the qualities that we dislike about ourselves or something else, that's what we'll see. But if we tend to see the qualities we like that are positive, that are constructive, we will, we will see that and we will be able to bring out this nature more and more. Now this nature doesn't have a taste or color or character necessarily, but it does have the quality of being completely beyond conditioning. Unconditioned, as the Buddha said, luminous, beyond constructs, right? This is when the Buddha attained enlightenment in some Mayana scriptures, they, the, 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 the first proclamation of the Buddha is like that. He described the experience of awakening as luminous, peaceful, beyond constructs, unconditioned. Um, and what he was talking about was this very nature, which for him fully came to fruition, right? Was fully bore, without any covering, no mud anymore, right? So in a way, we can look at the Buddhist path, we can look at the path of meditation as a method for washing the dirt, right? In a way. But it's kind of an illusion, right? Because the window, inherently, the window doesn't need to be washed. There's nothing wrong with the window, right? But yet, we perform, this, uh, act we perform activities, we perform this function of washing it. And then as we wash it, the window and the, the nature of that, the nature of our own Buddha nature, our nature of awakening can come out more and more, right? So, that is the kind of groundwork that we lay on the Buddhist path. That, that's the, the, the basic principle of where then all the philosophy and everything else gets built off of, right? And I think sometimes if we lose that kind of ground and that awareness of that, the Buddhist path can become quite... Um, dualistic, it can, be, it can also become uh, dogmatic in the sense that it feels like, you know, it can become also like a, not that different than like a self-help kind of path, nothing wrong with self-help, you know, but, you know, it can, it, Buddhism is a little different than self-help because it's, it's saying, you know, it, it's saying your nature, it, you're already awake in a sense, we just have to uncover that more and more through the path, right? So, Besides this, one of the other things I like to wake up and reflect on and just share with you today as sort of a, some content to discuss is um, 
what it means to be human. And, you know, there's so much bad news out there and, you know, overwhelm of uh, media overload. And to me, that is the issue, not necessarily the issues they're talking about. Of course, though, those matter, right? We, we have, I don't think, you know, if you look at it, you know, there's a question I often ask. I like to study history. I'm not a historian, but I like to study it. Has the world ever been good? Like, in a sense, has it ever been perfect? Has it ever been, you know, like, like I, I, I don't want to get political, but we could say, you know, even that term, make America great again, you know, some of us have been asking the question, when was it great, right? Because if you look at the history of America, it's not great. It's, it's pretty violent and awful, actually. And America's not unique in that, right? So, again, this isn't to make us feel bad or to overwhelm us or to stay in a kind of negative, negativity bias. It's to understand, like, what is reality? That's what we're trying to uncover. And I think if our meditation, one, one of the teachings from my teacher, Sogna Rinpoche, I'll read you one of his quotes, uh, but it's kind of, the essence of it is if we're not, we're not uncovering truth, we're not uncovering this nature eventually, and we're not looking inwards, what use is meditation? It's kind of like, it's kind of like a, it's, it's just a relaxation technique and that's it. You know, and that can be useful for some of us as a stepping stone, right? Come on in. How you doing? Um, so that can be really useful for us as a stepping stone, because we need to calm. A lot of us are overwhelmed. But then, what do we do with that? Wh how do we look inwards? How do we look towards reality, essentially, right? right? So, um, getting back to my other point. So, this idea of what it means to be human with kind of equal parts ability to turn awareness on itself, to turn awareness onto, the, onto our experience, to kind of unpack our lenses, to see what lenses we see through, right? And understanding conditioning and how that binds us. And we have just enough pain, just enough dissatisfaction, you know? Like I said, from a human viewpoint, the world, you know, if you look at history, like I said, it's, it's, it's you know, it's not that nice, <laughs> you know? You haven't, we haven't, I don't think there's been a Shangri-La yet uh, from, from what I've seen. So, so we can, so how do we hold this? We have equal parts, sort of enough dis dissatisfaction to kind of be a little fed up, right? a little annoyed, but at the same time, we have the freedom to look. In the sense, we have the, I should say, we have the potential, right? We have the potential to look inwards. We have the potential to unpack all of our lenses, actually. And that's a unique perspective on the Buddhist path. I mean, in certain secular forms of meditation, also in Western psychology, you could say like certain lenses can be unpacked and certain uh, conditioning can be seen through and transformed. From a Buddhist perspective, all lenses can. Meaning, like from from a we could even say from a traditional perspective, once someone becomes an enlightened being, like the Buddha, right, the historical Buddha, uh, there's no more lenses they see through, but they still see, right. So what do you see at that point if there's no lens you're seeing through? Yeah. So getting to the point here, we have this precious ground or nature of Buddha nature. This, this potential 
for awakening, this latent seed that we can water and grow. We have this precious human rebirth with just enough suffering to kind of kick us in the butt and just enough freedom to look, right? Because you can see if we watch, um, now again, it's not like some people are like, well, what's wrong with animals? Uh, you know, animals are great. And it's not a, like a competition or, a, you know, like I'm not trying to diss other kinds of species. You know what I'm saying? They also have Buddha nature from a Buddhist perspective. But the, the, if we look at the life of most animals, I'm not talking about like house pets, but if you look at, if you look at like a documentary about, you know, the ocean, mostly fighting for their life, you know, half the time. They're either eating or being eaten, right? I mean, let's, let's be real, right? And I'm sure there's other experiences too. And so the, the pressure, the human body is quite unique. Not that a fish doesn't have Buddha nature, it's just are the conditions there for them to recognize that Buddha nature? That's the question, right? So from a traditional perspective, we have the conditions to recognize this Buddha nature, right? And that is incredibly precious. It's something we shouldn't waste. From my perspective, this is the purpose of our life. And then, and then as we connect that back into the world and connect that back into our relationship to the world and others, right? That is the purpose of life. So, so then what do we do? <laughs> then the path is to uncover one veil at a time over and over and over until there's no more veils. Our sort of job, as you would say it, as a meditator, is to look inwards, is to stable, stabilize attention, stabilize awareness, and then use that awareness to see clearly, as, as we say in the Buddhist path, right? To see not only our relative lenses we see through, but ultimately seeing through the lens into how we are clinging to our experience now and how that binds us, right? Because experience is experience. From a Buddhist perspective, that won't stop. That keeps going over and over and over. Appearance will keep happening. But are we stuck in the appearance? Are we stuck in the experience out here? Or are we looking towards, right? So I think this is where the real power of meditation lies. First, of course, as a stepping stone for most of us, or just if, if our mind is just jumping everywhere, you know, the thinking mind, and we're just, you know, the habit is just to run to that thought every time it comes, of course we need to settle that. We need to come into some uh, a relaxed attention or, you know, dare I say calm or something like that. But it's easy to get stuck there as an experience, right? So you heard me say earlier in the meditation, actually Buddhist meditation uh, is not calmness. It's not a state or an experience. That's, that's kind of a side effect, right? That's something that just happens, happens by way of meditation. But, so what is it then? It's about cultivating this awareness. It's about cultivating an awareness that then can bear witness to our experience more fully, right? As a not completely sucked into every object, but as a subject observing, right? So, this is kind of the, the science of, of Buddhism in a sense, but it's a subjective science, right? Where we're the ones looking inwards into our experience and what that means. You know, I was talking with a friend yesterday too and about this and it's tough to, it's tough to express, but it's like here our relative experience is not denied at the same time, right? So whatever 
social systems are around us, those are still functioning until those change. Those are impermanent, obviously, and things do change. But those are functioning. So we have to become aware of those. We have to relate with those. We can't just bypass everything, right? We have to become aware. And this includes our own conditioning of where we were born, how we were raised, how we were educated, gender, race, all of that. That's necessary, right? Why? Because we have to be, you know, we have to see where, our, where we impact the world, how we enter a world socially, and how we can create a, a stance of compassion in the world, right? How our own personal stance can become more and more compassionate. But compassion here takes on a much deeper meaning than just making something pleasant. It's actually seeing clearly, seeing things as they are. That's kind of becomes the deeper aspiration here. How can I see things as they are as much as possible? And we become almost like obsessed with a thirst for that, right? And it's kind of painful when we're not seeing that. And I think on a deeper level, a lot of us, I think our pain does come from that in a way. I mean, of course, there's grosser you know, pain, challenging emotions, physical pain, things like that, but it's kind of this pain of like, we're seeking this truth again and again. So sometimes I, I use the word happiness, but actually if we look, we just, we want to know. But, you know, when things, when the veils are in front of us, it's painful. And so also those veils are what bind us, right? Because once, uh, once we have an appearance and we, you know, we have this word shempa in Tibetan, which means kind of like to get hooked to something. So once we get hooked, we're hooked, right? But the key of meditation is to notice that hook. When the awareness comes, we notice, oh, I'm hooked. And again, that's not to then say, deny whatever experience is happening. It's just to come into a fuller awareness of what that might be. Because we start to see that our experience, that appearance is not one thing, right? It's interdependent. As one of my friends says, Elizabeth Namgyal, it leans, right? I think that's a cool way to say it. It's in relation, right? And when something leans or it's in relation, it's never one thing. It never has one truth, right? So what's funny about Buddhism is we use the word truth, ultimate truth, relative truth, different expressions like this. But at the end, there's, there's, there's uh, the, tr the two truths, these relative and ultimate truths. Are, they're not two and they're not true. So it's kind of like a, a tricky thing. But we have to use language, right? We have to use language to get at this. But the main point I want to make before we sort of separate into dyads is um, why are we meditating? You know, like, like why do we do this? We have to question that again and again. We have to kind of become ruthless in, in, in wanting to uncover what is it that, that binds me to my personal suffering and what will liberate me, right? And so liberation takes on a big, it has a big connotation here. Because it's going beyond every single lens, every single dualistic construct. And again, we could talk about this in words, but what does this mean? You know? Does it mean then we're kind of a, a feelingless, emotionless, stateless person? No. We could feel more. We could be more involved. There's just not the blockage of self-interest and self-absorption, right? There's not the blockage and boundary of... I need this, me, 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 that kind of thing, right? And then, what is left? Just a heart that's open, a light that's open towards the world, towards others. 
And so I think this is where compassion, this is the kind of compassion I aim for. Because, you know, compassion is wonderful in a, in, a, in a relative sense, in the sense like we should cultivate like a relative compassion, meaning just being kind to, to each other, also growing an ability to bear witness to the suffering around us and want that to change and want to act on that, to change that directly. But then at the end, it's tricky because in a dualistic construct, the, the problem, I should say, the, the solution eventually becomes the problem. So it's very tricky, right? So we have a problem, right? I mean, this is the question I usually ask, and this is for you to think about. I'm still thinking about it. I have these open questions that are just running over time. So I ask this question, is there any problem that you've ever, or should, I should say, is there any solution to a problem you've ever witnessed that didn't create another problem? In the world, right? Politically, personally, whatever, right? So this is a deep question. We, we have to ask this again. And, and, and from a Buddhist perspective, they would say, no, because as soon as you have a solution, it has all kinds of impacts, right? And those impacts, uh, uh, those tentacles or whatever, or conditions, move out and interact with all kinds of other conditions. So it's very hard to predict what's going to happen because of something. Like I usually use this in the context of a, if we don't like a political leader and then suddenly, like let's say just magically we can oust that person, right? We don't know what's going to happen because of that. You can see around the world what happens. Sometimes you know, dictators fall and the people who, who suffer the most and die are you know, women and children and you know, the poorest people in that country. So we don't know. So this is where compassion takes on this bigger job and this bigger view. Again, how our own practice, meditation, and inner growth can meet the world, right? Because if that compassion is simply, if it's not aiming at undoing our veils and our own conditioning and lenses, we're never going to be able to see someone for who they are, right? We're never ever going to be able to because there will always be judgment no matter what. There's one quote I love uh, by an Indian yogi named uh, uh, Tilopa. Uh, I think he was like 8th, eight, 9th or 10th century, I can't remember. But anyways, he says, um, judgment is samsara. And, and samsara is a big word in, in Buddhist in, uh, terminology, but it basically means to circle. It means to circle in pain, suffering, and duality again and again. Not just from life to life, but each moment. Each moment that, that hook comes and we cling, we circle, right? Again and again. And so he said, actually, it's the judgment that's binding you to that, right? Not judgment in the sense like, I shouldn't walk in front of the street right now and, you know, that wouldn't be a good idea to get hit by a car. Not that kind of thing. That's more discernment. We're talking here judgment where our own lens is affecting how we see, right? If we're wearing red glasses, we see everything is red. Suddenly everybody's red, <laughs> right? So our job as a meditator is to see into that and to look honestly, look towards and use that awareness. And that's why it's so important to grow the awareness. And if it simply just goes to calmness and how relaxed can I be, the awareness won't grow, unfortunately. Sorry to break the news, yeah? But it won't grow. And if it just goes to like, oh, how blissful and peaceful can I get, this won't grow. Because we have to be honest, the world is not blissful and peaceful, right? So that can become a huge, what we call like a spiritual bypass. And it also ends up bypassing our own feelings and emotions. That's why for me, I like to start practices uh, checking in with the body and just being, right? 
culturally, uh, I, I don't know about all of you, but I can speak for myself. I was never taught how to work with emotions. You know, I was never taught. Um, I was taught how to think and, and you know, identify myself and, and identify my place in the world through that. And so um, this cut me off from my feelings. So my process of practice has also been getting more into the body, right, over time. So anyways, um, we're at 11. And uh, what I thought we'd do is dyads or triads, Casey? Tri OK. So maybe what we're going to do is break into triads um, and just find a place around the room and, and what I, I mean, maybe the question I want to ask is, first of all, you could just discuss anything that came up in this talk and I want to, you know, with each other and, but really focus it on your life and where this, where this comes into connection in your life and where it affects you. Um, these are kind of some bigger ideas and principles, so I may, I may not have a specific question, but it's maybe around awareness, focusing on where our practice can serve in bringing out these lenses, both personal, social, all the way up to just dualism itself from a Buddhist perspective, which would be the most, the, the biggest, the root of all of it, yeah? That sound okay? Yeah, any questions? Okay, we'll do Q&A after. So yeah, so uh, we'll go for 15 minutes and do that. Thanks, everyone. Um, so just for the next 15 minutes, we can do some Q&A or just anything you want to talk about what came up maybe in the triads. You're welcome to share if, if you want to. Um, but yeah, feel free. What kind of, what, what came up for you guys? If you're, you, you thought you heard me saying that we're yeah. solving problems during meditation? Right. No, no, no. So, so I want to be clear here. So, in Buddhism, the purpose of meditation is not relaxation. Yet we need the relaxation. So it's a bit of a trick, right? Because if we're not relaxed, it's completely. Let's be honest. You know, it's really hard, right? The mind is just running all over the place. So when the body calms, what we do is we sustain, uh, we sustain the awareness based on the ground of that calmness. Yeah? So maybe calmness is a better word than relaxation, because relaxation is usually something we're trying to get, right? where calmness is a space. But often what happens is meditation 
when it's uh, 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 taught these days, it's, it's taught as you just get in the calmness and you stay there, you know? It's a little bit like a nap. So, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes we need a nap, let's be honest, right? So it's okay. It's not like uh, I'm not trying to, you know, demonize anything. Um, but we have to see, well, what are we trying to do on the Buddhist path? And what are the tools we need to do that? So awareness itself is a part of the mind that's not the thinking mind. It's not the knowing aspect in the sense, um, it's not perception, right? But it's a knowing that we're knowing. Like, so, so for instance, if I ask all of you to raise your hand, and just hold your hand up, please. <laughs> now know your hand. Whatever you're feeling right now, or whatever your, your state is, that's awareness, okay? And then meditation is the process of sustaining that. That's all we're doing. So then the breath can become an object for sustaining that. Sound can become an object for sustaining that. Sometimes we just rest in the awareness itself. That's usually the practice I do. Just rest in the awareness itself and sustain that. And then the mind settles. And the awareness grows to a capacity where we can kind of rest the awareness somewhere and it doesn't move all over the place. Or like it's like a flag being blown in the wind. Then we turn the awareness inwards for insight practice. And then insight practice, there's many. You know, um, some of it is a, a more of an analytical uh, um, insight practice. Some are just more settling, like uh, with the four foundations of mindfulness, like, like just turning the awareness toward to watch the body or feeling. So there's many different types. So yeah, that's essentially, so these two aspects of what we usually call calm abiding or shamatha practice of training the awareness or maintaining the awareness uh, to rest in the present moment, training it to do that, and then turning the awareness inwards. So I was kind of talking about these two in the, f in the first part of the talk, a little bit like training the awareness to rest in the present moment. Then when I was talking about seeing through, like seeing our lenses and unpacking what those are and seeing through the veils of how we perceive things, that's more insight practice. And so some of that is done through contemplating and thinking, but it also ha a lot of it is done kind of directly through watching an experience. Where if you just do it with me now, if you just watch the body, and if you watch it long enough, you start to see the truth of the body. Yeah. So is it like an unbiased observer? Yeah, you're kind of cultivating that. But that unbiased observer is also trying to penetrate into what is reality and what's extraneous to reality, right? And so, and that's a big project, you know, <laughs> that's a huge project. But I think the start is, is I do think that, um, you know, because we have a lot of, uh, we're, we're, we're social justice is meeting meditation these days, and, and, it's, and it's a, mindfulness and meditation are a super useful tool for that. Because you, you can, we, we can start to unpack relative systems that are functioning in our own uh, implicit and explicit bias and things like that. And then Buddhism's asking you to go deeper, beyond just the social structures, to the inward structures of identity and how we're building those within us. Right? Even when it's just me identifying with my socks or something silly like that. Because right? I like my socks. I get compliments on them a lot. <laughs> You're welcome to compliment me. <laughs> Somewhere, actually, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Good. Yeah. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so, part of my graduate school work uh, now is we're studying. I, I'm studying higher education, 
And so we're looking into studies of uh, K through 12 impact on higher education, and we're teaching our children to overachieve constantly. And so when they're reaching uh, universities, they, they want to do everything and they want to do it perfectly. And I see that trend in myself. I think that I constantly think I'm not doing enough. And even just being aware, like while I'm doing awareness, I'm like, it's not enough. <laughs> like, why is that enough? Um, and uh, both, I was talking to Elaine about like when, we, when I do artwork, that's that, that one exception of feeling like I actually trust the process yeah. of being able to take something from, from just an idea to trusting my intuition to the completion of that project. And at the very end, the answer to that doesn't create another question. And so let's just... Well, can you repeat that? Just the, the say that again? So um, taking an art project from an idea to completion, the, that answer to that question, to that idea that I had in my mind, doesn't create more questions. Yeah. yeah. It, but, but that's through a different media rather than, you know, thinking about like social structures of how we answer questions. It, it projects more questions. But I think in my mind, of course, I was like trying to prove you wrong. You know, like you're like, no, there, there's got to be an answer to this. Um, I think solution, yeah. it's not a question, it's solution. Mm -hmm. But solution here means ultimate solution, right. not relative solution. Relative solutions we have. Like if your toilet's broken, you go get a plumber and you fix it, right? <laughs> that's obvious. Yeah. Art, you can solve an art piece, right? For, but that's relative. Right. It doesn't solve it for every single person. You see what I'm saying? So yeah. ultimately, it didn't solve it. Stop trying to prove me wrong. No, no, no. But <laughs> this is the dialogue, you know? No. So, um, so anyways, but yeah. yeah. And, and then I, I think um, you raised a valid point, which is I think what, what I'm saying and I think what, what generally in Buddhism, no, no, awareness isn't enough. It, it's not. It's where does that awareness meet reality? And then, and then within, inherent within our Buddha nature is a compassionate expression. And this is often what gets lost too when meditation is secularized more and more, is um, this is all connected into uh, our interconnection uh, as, as sentient beings, as well as that awareness, once it touches the nature of reality, it's not a nothingness. It's what comes out of that is a deep expression of uh, not only uh, joy at, at the, the, the relief of suffering being extinguished, but one can't help, but one's heart can't help but break at the sadness of others being mired in their suffering. And then there's no, the, the, that individual person has gone beyond the problem and solution for themselves. They've, they've, so essentially we could say they've solved it, but not with a solution. And at that point, there's nothing to do but to benefit others. So we're talking about benefit here that goes beyond the problem and solution. So this is, this is definitely in the religious realm of like a, an enlightened being can, can help others in a way that does not create another bind for the person. But in the world, but again, going back to a relative level, just to be clear, and why awareness isn't enough on a relative level, is um, we can help in the world and we can reduce the suffering of others. That's the whole point. And the more aware we become, the better skilled we're going to be at that, even if it is creating another problem by a solution, right? At least we're going to reduce the suffering, or at least attempt to do that. And so it's kind of the, the aspect here on the Buddhist path is, you know, one way to say it is that the world is not completely fixable, but we still act to help fix the world in a way, right? But we don't believe we're going to fix it, but we still act, right? And that's where the compassionate attitude comes in, yeah.
that make sense? Yeah. I didn't cover that, so thank you. Yeah. yeah. Anything else? <laughs> yeah. It's kind of another category that's kind of in, in the cultivation of like heart practices. Um, you could kind of say, I guess, if you had to put it in a category, it would be more in an insight practice, but it's not necessarily seeing the nature of something. It's kind of like the other side of a coin of insight practices, because you have wisdom and compassion as the two sides of one coin, right? Or wisdom and love as the two sides. And in one way, when you connect with a mind of love or compassion, our own self-cherishing reduces, meaning, and also our own clinging to an attachment to who we think we are and what we think is right starts to reduce because our heart and our attitude is opening up to another, right? And so that's why it's that other flip side of the coin where it can lead to wisdom as well. So yeah, maybe it is in the insight category, though we wouldn't technically say that. Yeah, because I just, you know, typically I don't That was really powerful for me. Like, yeah. I felt a big shift in my ability to act from an awakened heart. So that was great. But then, you know, I'm kind of like not sure where to put that, you know? Yeah. Because, again, I really want, I mean, to develop uh, my concentration and ability to kind of settle. And that way it just feels very necessary to me. Yeah. But I also felt like, awesome <laughs> yeah do both i mean it's you know i think it's usually a, a you know like a daily practice if we're trying to cultivate that you know it's good to, to do a little you know settle the mind a little bit with with shamatha practice and then you know grow that awareness a little bit and then we use that awareness to grow a certain perspective like be it forgiveness or loving kindness or insight into the nature of, of things emptiness practice so so we would we would then use that awareness. So it's perfectly fine. Yeah, you can you can do both. Yeah. So, I mean, when you were a, a monk, you, you would chant um, and use different meditations, right? Yeah. And, and they're sort of like tools in the toolbox, right? Are they yeah. Not? Yeah, and I think they're all connected in the sense, like when we look at the bigger picture of the ground. This ground of Buddha nature is also the fruition in Buddhism. So it's a bit of a tricky thing. And the path is the kind of the means we're on to bring about that fruition of what we already have. <laughs> it's like a strange, you know, process. And so all of the tools are that path, right? All the tools and different practices are just different ways to come to that nature, which is open, uh, luminous, peaceful, beyond, con beyond constructs, unconditioned. And then because of that, beyond constructs, un beyond, you know, unconditioned, luminous, you could also throw in there, the expression is compassion. So it's like we have this kind of, I'm coming back to your question a little bit too, we have this duality on the path of like, it feels like we're cultivating loving kindness and compassion, we're cultivating it in a dualistic way at first, right? Mm -hmm. Meaning, it's just the thought that we're cultivating and then connected to a feeling. But that helps to kind of wash this dirt and get closer to the nature, which is fundamentally that, but not from a, a, th a thought perspective. 
it's the actual expression, right, itself. So yeah, so then we use lots of tools, mantras, sadhanas, meta practice, you know, karuna, compassion practice, prostrations, offerings. You know, this is, I almost talked about this today, but I decided not to, but um, maybe in the future. I, I'm trying to form some, some pedagogy around this. Um, because what we've done is, is, is we've kind of whitewashed Buddhism in America to, to a larger extent, where we've taken out the, the perspectives of it. Because all my teachers are Tibetan. I don't have a, a lot of Western teachers. And no offense, to, I am a West teacher, but anyways. No offense to Western teachers. But, uh, but you know, we, we come at this with a scientific materialist ideology without realizing it sometimes. And we also come at this with the history of colonization and, and, and white supremacy and how that shows up sy systematically in, in the culture. And so sometimes that, that colonizes the, the, it can, this is a theory I have, it can colonize the tradition itself and take out the, the necessary things like the prayer, faith, devotion, all these things that open the heart and connect us into our fuller humanness. And so for me, I'm trying to, cause so those are some of those tools. Like for me, actually, a lot of my practice is devotion and settling them like awareness. So I'm just constantly going between those. I visualize, I imagine my guru, my teachers, I imagine the Buddhas in front of me, I open my heart to them, not just as an outer being, but as a principle that represents my own Buddha nature as well. And then something shifts in me, and it's much easier to meditate. So there's, there's aspects that when we take them out, it's sort of like we're turning the tool into like only a, only a you know what I'm saying? Only a, not a tool, but a, the word like only a strategy or say that again yeah. only a tactic so yeah so I'm just kind of open up your question but but it, so tool would also include prayer things like that mm -hmm. you know so actually yeah that's the majority of my practice very little of my practice is sitting quietly actually good question so prayer in Buddhism is like engaging with um, either an aspiration like, uh, for instance, words that are evoking a certain aspiration, feeling, attitude, and then we're, or a, a devotional practice, right? Like a prayer that might represent praising or, or mm, lifting up something or the qualities of something you want to connect with and something you value. And so the words are there to chant, to trigger an emotion, to trigger an experience, to trigger... Uh, a contemplative process and so it becomes much more integrated because again we're so cognitive heavy heavy in the culture these days American culture um, that when we open the heart in this way it gets us out of the cognitive too yet starts to develop these qualities so that would be prayer so it prayer is a type of meditation in Buddhism because we're contemplating on whatever that prayer is saying right? you mentioned that your, your background is Tibetan Buddhism yeah Cool. Yeah. But um, you know, a lot of that stuff there's a it, there's a cultural thing to it. And we're not. I'm not Tibetan, mm -hmm. and so the things that they believe in some of the, I, the you know the, the, all the different god gods and Buddhas and this. I mean, that's just not part of my culture. Mm -hmm. And and I think it's it's false for me to try to be a Tibetan Buddhist because. I'm not, I wasn't brought up with that, I don't have a cultural background or anything. So I think that we are Americans and we have to find a, 
an American form of Buddhism, not a Tibetan Buddhism or a Japanese Buddhism, but an American Buddhism that, that, that has our own background or whatever it is. And uh, there's probably a lot of tools and things in Tibetan Buddhism that we can use, chanting and this and that other thing. But I, I don't think we can take that and stick it on to Americans and say this is... So I'll give you two examples. Well, I'll ask you a question okay. first, and then I'll give you some examples, right? The question here is, and this is, I don't want an answer. I just want us to think about it. I'm thinking about this too. I don't have an answer. In America, what, what culture would we bring that, what culture would we develop Buddhism into or out of? So that's the question I have, because it's a very complicated situation in this country. So but it is what it is. Yet the Tibetans are, are lucky that they have had this culture that they've had for hundreds of years. That have been, they were very isolated and had this culture. They built up all this stuff. We don't have a different culture. I think the. I think. First of all, I just say I'm not advocating for us becoming Tibetan. We're we're not going to be able to come, become Tibetan. We aren't Tibetan. Then what I want to say is a lot of what you're perceiving as cultural is not cultural. It's actually there's. There's aspects of it that when you deeply learn about it and you integrate it into your life and you understand the meaning behind it, it's symbology for working with the mind and for working with awakening. So that's been my experience um, over time. And, and my experience has also been that a majority of us, we're still in this phase of Buddhism coming to America where we have to sit at the feet of our Asian teachers. And, and the reason being is not because they're better than us or blah, blah, blah. It's because they've held these lineages for thousands of years and they have some information to impart to us and when Buddhism, I'll give you another example, when Buddhism came from India to Tibet, the Tibetans still to this day view Indian culture and people as their like grandfathers because of how Buddhism came into Tibet and so it, it took uh, 500 years for, for Buddhism or more for Buddhism to really make its way into Tibet where in a stable way and to, con and to start coming into where there's a cultural perspective that Tibetans could relate to as something native to them and indigenous to them. So my view is that's going to take time here. And then my, my first question, maybe I should have said that first, but my, my question still applies, you know, which is what culture is going to become American Buddhism? Because capitalism is not a culture. You see what I'm Systemic, systemic white supremacy is not a culture. So it's very tricky here. It's very tricky. So. So yes, cultural trappings can be an obstacle, but I still feel like, personally for me, it's hard. Like, I, I agree with you in a lot of ways, you know? Well, so, I just like so, in America, we believe in equality. That, that is a culture, not, not everybody does. I mean, there's some <laughs> <laughs> in our constitution, the idea is that we're all equal. No, the, actually, the Constitution, it was that certain people were equal. Right. That's, that's, see, that's well, the it, difference it, here. It, yeah. it turned out that way because women and blacks and so forth. Yeah. But yeah. it wasn't written that way. It didn't exclude them specifically, yeah. but by laws it did. Okay, but I'm just saying there is part of our American culture or whatever that is not all bad. Of course not. No, no, I'm not saying that. I love, I love American culture. anyway, so I mean, it, it should embrace... Yeah. No, that's the issue. So we're embracing, we should believe in equality, embracing everybody. Yeah, but let me get to my, now we're going to left. No, it's all good. Um, yeah. I'll get to my point, which is, you know, for me, I beat my head against the wall for 10 years because of, of what you're talking about. I, I really feel for what you're saying, honestly, because 
you know, I couldn't, re- I'm not Tibetan, you know, I couldn't relate to it. I tried to be Tibetan for a while, and that didn't work out so well, you know. I finally realized I'm this weird Jewish-Italian white guy, you know, monk, you know. And, uh, and so, and that was painful for me, actually, believe it or not. Um, and so, um, anyways, and after 10 years, and, and a lot of hard work, things start to integrate, and it does become personal. You know, and it becomes personal based off of not taking something and trying to redo it in our own image, but taking something with respect and honor from from a lineage. And that means something, I think. And this is kind of and how do we do that in a way that doesn't you know, we all have so much trauma from religion and, and dogma and all that. And how do we do that in a way that can suit us and and not kind of you know, become the extreme of ultra-religious, you know, dogma, or this other extreme where we're just like, well, just throw everything out and then remake it. And then I just, you know, this is something I struggle with because I teach all around the country and I see it as a big issue. And, you, and, some, people, and some people claim we have an American Buddhism already. Oh, it's such a, to me it's so sad. Like, like, we don't. We don't. We're very far from that. And so I feel, I really request all of you, please, like, go meet really authentic, like Casey is a wonderful teacher and, you know, and they invite wonderful teachers here, but Casey and I have trained with authentic lineage holders of, of, of who hold these seats in Asia. It's really vital we do this right now. If you really authentically want to connect with Buddhism, and again, it doesn't mean you're going to like everything or you're going to accept it, just connect with what you connect with and take that. You don't have to like everything. And then, but what I would say at least, based on our topic today, this is one of our lenses, where we see through our bias what we like and don't like. So part of meditation is to look inwards and see, why, why, why is this triggering me? Like for me, there's some Tibetan stuff I absolutely hate, you know what I'm saying? Some of the cultural stuff. And, and over time I realized, oh, that's not quite culture. Like there's something in, so I'm gonna give you an example. A lot of the things you're talking about are actually Vajrayana Buddhism, which isn't Tibetan. It's something beyond Tibetan and Indian. But it takes on the, the representations uh, uh, culturally as well. So anyways, I'm going to leave it there because I want to open up. But Do we got to end? Okay.